This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight in books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording on Monday, August 8th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, I continue to be trucking along. How are you? <laughs> I also am trucking along. It is... Uh, my brother is getting married this weekend, so there's a lot of wedding, pre-wedding festivities and prep to do this week, but we're all moving forward. What is your favorite, is your favorite role at a wedding, like, do you like to participate in the wedding or do you like to be a guest at the wedding? That's a good question. I was the maid of honor at a wedding once and I found that very stressful, but I think partially that's because I was like 20 and did not know anything about anything. No. (laughs) And so it was partially like because I was 20 and dumb that it was so, so stressful. Um... I like being a guest at a wedding where I know a lot of people because then it is just like a really big fun party with people that you like. Mm -hmm. That's my, that's my favorite kind. Okay. How about you? Well, I mean, definitely guests, but that's because I don't like to do things. So (laughs) there's so much more doing of things. I feel like, I felt like I had to like pre-ask all of my bridesmaids at my wedding because mm-hmm. I was like, well, this is something terrible, obviously. So <laughs> uh, if you don't want to do it, let me know and I'll totally understand. I should ask my wife, Michelle, though, because she's she loves doing things. So I wonder if she likes being a bridesmaid. She probably does. To be fair, I have almost no responsibilities when it comes to this wedding. Uh, my sister is making cupcakes. My parents are helping with a lot of stuff, but I have... I have almost nothing on my list that I need to do, so I I shouldn't really be kvitting about having to, to do a lot of wedding prep because I, I don't have a lot compared to other people, for sure. <laughs> when you were talking about how stressful it is, though, being a maid of honor, it reminded me of at my wedding. Did I tell you how my maid of honor forgot my little vows book? That no. Oh, no. Well, I did not know it until after the wedding because apparently our pastor started talking about, you know, oh, and these vows that they will make to each other. And my maid of honor looked wide eyed at one of my bridesmaids who understood immediately <laughs> what had happened. And the bridesmaid, who was my beloved friend, jumped up. With, I did not see her. Ran out of the like ceremony our wedding planner, like our day planner, was like shouting at her. <laughs> she was like, where are you going? And she got the little book, ran back in time for vows. Did not. I didn't notice a thing. It was afterwards. They were like, oh, yeah, we forgot the the book. <laughs> wow. That is heroic. I am amazed. <laughs> what a great cover. The thing I remember most about when I was the maid of honor was uh, the night before the wedding, we were, like, getting ready, and, you know, like, I was doing my best maid of honor. I had looked up all these, like, things maid of honors need to have, and I had a whole tote bag and everything, whatever. Uh, and I, I made a joke to the bride about how, like, you know, 
Hopefully I don't forget the wedding rings. And she just gave me this look of just like, I will murder you. Because <laughs> she did not think that joke was funny at all. And so then she like went and put herself to bed. And then her, hus- her husband-to-be was like, I thought that was funny. It's okay. <laughs> so, uh, jokes about wedding rings. Not, not great. It's very stressful to to be getting married, kind of. It is. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. I don't I don't blame her at all. It's just it's just a funny thing I remember. So we were gonna talk really briefly. This is our first podcast back after after we took a little break in kind of July and early August. Which thank you everyone for listening to some older episodes and waiting till we got back. Uh, we were both just feeling super burnt out and needed a little bit of time away. So we're going to talk more about the books that we read while we were on vacation or on, on a sabbatical or whatever you want to call it later in the episode. So many of them. I know. I read a ton. It was great. And even some nonfiction, which is like more nonfiction than I've read this whole year. So I think it was very needed. Uh, all right. So before we get into that, uh, we're going to hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high-arched alcoves, an oak-lined library, and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working-class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she's befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then, 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high-profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school, and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover, once and for all, what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling, When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege, and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power, and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul-mouthed, paint-splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, so our first segment back uh, this week in every episode is uh, Nonfiction in the News, which are news stories that are related to something in the world of nonfiction. 
Uh, and so this week's is, uh, is kind of a sad one. We'll link to an article from the New York Times, which is an obituary for author David McCullough, who died at the age of 89. Uh, it was just announced today, I believe, uh, as we're recording. So he was a best-selling author. He was a television host and narrator. Um, he wrote big dad nonfiction books is the best way I can always, that's that's what I think of when I hear David McCullough is dad nonfiction. Uh, He won two Pulitzer Prizes for presidential biographies, uh, one for a biography of Truman and one for a biography of John Adams. Uh, He received a National Book Awards for multiple titles. Truman was on the New York Times bestseller list for 43 weeks. John Adams was number one his first week and has gone through dozens of printings. Uh, His books have been adapted into movies and miniseries. You mentioned when we were talking before the episode that he was um, the narrator for Ken Burns' The Civil War documentary, which I didn't know. Um, So just really prolific, particularly in the world of nonfiction, but kind of across nonfiction uh, media, I guess. Yeah, but like all like dad media, for sure. Uh, I (laughs) tried to read his John Adams biography so many times. I got a hardcover copy when it first came out, um, which I think I was a freshman or something in college uh, because I was very into John Adams and I was like, I'm gonna do it. And then I I just kept trying. It's so boring. But I say that (laughs) with affection because I mean, he 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 seemed like a very pleasant man. I hope he wasn't in reality. And I have watched the Ken Burns, the Civil War documentary series so many times. And he is the very Mm -hmm. soothing, calm voice that guides you through that. Um, and the many, you know, terrible things that happen within that and so many Ken Burns series. I've been rewatching The West and it's very similar. But yeah, he, he just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. definitely made a mark on particularly late 20th century, early 21st century American dad culture. <laughs> Yeah, I will say the uh, the other book that popped up as I was reading this article that I was like, boy, if I was going to read David McCullough, I think this is the one I would pick. Uh, it's called The Great Bridge, and it was from 1972, but it is an account of the technology, personalities, and politics involved in building the Brooklyn Bridge, which seems more up my alley than presidential biographies. So perhaps there is a David McCullough book for, for all of us. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, so with that, we're going to jump into uh, new books, which are books that are come out recently or coming out soon that we're excited about. We're going to do some in August and some in July since we were off during July, and so we're going to catch a couple of those. So my first pick is called Bright, a Memoir by Kiki Petrosino, uh, which comes out August 9th from Sarah Band Books. Um, Sarah Band Books is a nonprofit literary press from Louisville, Kentucky. It was established in 1994, and they publish poetry, fiction, and essays. And so this book, it's a very tiny book. It's like 200 pages long. I sat down to like start reading it on my Kindle thinking I would read, you know, a quarter of it, whatever. And I looked up and all of a sudden I was like 60% finished because Petrosino, she's a poet. And so it's one of those memoirs that are essay-y, poet kind of poetry, um, plays with form a little bit in some cool ways. It's really interesting. So uh, Bright is the idea. It's a, she's writing about, so she's mixed race. Her mother is African-American. Her father is Italian. Bright is a slang word that is used to describe light-skinned people of black and white ancestry. Uh, It is not a word that is used as a compliment. And so she spends the memoir kind of exploring that word and how it has showed up and shown up in her life in different ways. And so she 
does some memoir writing. She does some archival research into her family history. Um, she writes a lot about like Thomas Jefferson and sort of the different uh, you know ideas about him and his experiences in Virginia. Um, she just a lot of really different interesting um, stuff, and I. I, I, this is one I would really like to have see in print, I think, compared to like my Kindle, which is what I read it on, because I just think that there's probably a lot in the way that the text is formatted that I think would be really cool and probably gets lost, right, when you have a EPUB file and a Kindle. But it's very interesting, like just the way that she looks at brightness and being an interracial American person and the different ways that that shows up for her. And so it's a really slim little book, but I thought very interesting and one that I, like, I feel like I want to pick up and read again just because I I was surprised when I finished it. So that is Bright, a memoir by Kiki Petrosino. Oh, that sounds good. I do like, this feels like whatever sort of resounding tropes. That can't be right. Things that we say, but I do love nonfiction by poets. Mm -hmm. It's really good. I do. Yeah. Nonfiction by Poets is always so precise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she said imprecisely. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. <laughs> uh, my first pick uh, is A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse by Victoria Shepard. Uh, this came out July 19th from One World. Victoria Shepard has a radio series called A History of Delusions that was on BBC Radio. And so this is a a book version of her her uh, podcast radios. I don't, is radio the same thing as podcast nowadays? Kind of. Kind of. Potentially. Anyway, Kim's <laughs> like, no, not at all. Um, so in this, each chapter is, is a, a different, you know, kind of delusion from history there is uh chapter titles include like the melancholic delusions of robert burton uh the glass delusion of king charles the sixth of france which is you know the king thought he was made of glass the clockmaker who lost his head that takes place during the french revolution um kind of talks also about the intense stress right that would be happening around that time if you lived in france Mm -hmm. um madam m who uh in 1918 she uh asked for a divorce because she thought that her husband had been replaced by imposters. So, and again, imposters, plural. Robert Burton, in the chapter title that referred to him, um, he <laughs> he lived in the 17th century. He was a psychological theorist. And he calculated a horoscope and he believed in it so wholeheartedly that he apparently died by suicide in order to go along with it because it prophesied his death. So it's, which again, delusion. So everything is, uh, I would say it, it ranges from the comic to I- extreme tragedy uh, in this sort of history of delusions, which makes sense. So again, A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse by Victoria Shepard. That is an Excellent subtitle. This is true. That sounds fascinating. I, I I had not actually heard of any of those stories before, which kind of surprises me. So that's really cool. Well, and the clockmaker who lost his head, he was saying that it had been cut off by the guillotine, which oh. is quite a thing to be saying. Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, it's so many interesting books came out in July this year. Yeah, that one sounds fascinating. 
All right, so my next pick is uh, What the Children Told Us, The Untold Story of the Famous Doll Test and the Black Psychologist to Change the World by Tim Spofford, uh, which is out August 9th from Sourcebooks. Uh, and so I think like every Psychology 101 or Child Psych class talks about um, the doll test, which is this very famous um, study where uh, black children and white children were shown uh, four different dolls. Two of them were white with yellow hair and two were brown with black hair. And then the psychologist doing the experiment asked them questions like, which doll would you like to play with? Uh, give me the doll that is a nice doll. Which one is a bad doll? Which one looks like you? And then... They, the test showed that black children showed preferences to white dolls, um, thought that they were nice, and like even wished that they were white dolls. And so it was about the way that racism and ideas about being black and white were ingrained even in children in the communities where the study was completed. And so this book is the story of the two psychologists who did that test and how that experiment and study has been used over time to talk about um, race and how race affects children. So uh, the two psychologists were Dr. Kenneth Clark and his wife, Mimi Clark. And they uh, met when they were college students and got married. And then this is a study that they did kind of early in their careers. And so um, it was designed to measure how segregation affected black children's perceptions of themselves and black people. And so they conducted the test in, I think, Philadelphia and then in a city in the South. And yeah, the, it's just it's been a hugely influential study. And so this is a book looking kind of at it and then how the Clarks decided to do it and what they learned. And so it is about their um, intellectual and emotional partnership. It is about how they tried to share the results of their study with people. Uh, it is about how the results of that study played a role in Brown versus Board of Education, um, how that study led to some of their ongoing ad advocacy and activism, and on their marriage. And so uh, a few of the reviews I read of this one said that it is very detailed. So, um, and it is like 360 something pages. So it's definitely an in-depth look at this study. But uh, I think books like this are fascinating, right? They give you like the inside story about a thing that you sort of hear anecdotally or hear the very t high level contours of, but to really understand like what it was about and what it mattered and why it even came about in the first place, I think is really interesting. So that is What the Children Told Us, The Untold Story of the Famous Doll Test and the Black Psychologist to Change the World by Tim Spafford. Well, that's really fascinating. That um, one of the books I'm going to talk about in our second segment, which is like a history of um, racist ideas in America, definitely mm -hmm. talks about the doll test and um, how, yeah. you know, sort of the, the, the undergirding racist ideas that propped up, you know, all of these systems that like influenced children when mm -hmm. doing this test. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, definitely, definitely very famous. That's really interesting. My next pick is A Good Country, My Life in 12 Towns and the Devastating Battle for a White America by Sophia Ali Khan. This came out July 5th from Random House. Um, Sophia Ali Khan is a social justice focused attorney now a writer. She's worked for Community Legal Services of Philadelphia and Prairie State Legal Services in uh, Illinois, and also was a uh, founding board member with the one of the um, local chapters of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. So with that background, and also her parents emigrated from Pakistan to America, and so sort of growing up as the child of immigrants, but, you know, specifically 
um, Pakistani immigrants in America around the time of like post September 11th. So that's sort of the the basis of the book is right. It's like, okay, so things were extremely hard for particularly like Arab Americans in the post 2000 era. But the way that she sort of brings it to now is talking about what started happening um, around 2015 in terms of increases in assaults against American Muslims. And she says in the introduction that they were higher in 2015 than they had ever been, even higher than they had been in 2001, just after 9-11. And in 2016, assault rates increased even more. So that's the context in mm-hmm. which she approaches this book. And she decides to look at the color lines in each of her 12 towns and look at sort of the stories of forced migrations that shaped them. And this goes from the origins of America's Chinatowns, the expulsion of Maroon and Seminole people um, during the conquest of Florida, Virginia's stake in, quote, breeding humans for sale, and then just looking at how America's Settler colonial origins have defined the law and landscape to maintain a white America, which is just like, I was going to say fascinating and devastating. Devastating is in the in the subtitle. So I'm just sort mm-hmm. of like, yes, exactly. <laughs> you, yeah. you know your own book uh, or the publisher does. And just like, again, her background, uh, being a lawyer, also working with these local organizations having children and sort of looking at it, you know, through their perspective as well. But yeah, I just like all of these different sort of threads of her life coming together mm-hmm. into this book and then doing her research on these color lines in these towns. I'm just very interested. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, so again, that is A Good Country, My Life in 12 Towns and the Devastating Battle for a White America by Sophia Ali Khan. It reminds me a little bit of the warmth of other suns, right? Where like that is about, that's about migration patterns, but then it's about how African-Americans settled in different cities and how every city has their own version of a story of black and African-American families coming there and then white families and white politicians pushing back and like setting up segregated commu- you know, areas and redlining and all of those things, right? And so like that, that happened in cities all over the place and that you can find the same patterns in different places. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. My point is like, this is a, that's a really, I think, effective and interesting way to talk about this is to show that like your town is not different or special, really. Like you're doing the same things. We have similar choices have been made and similar experience. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and, and sort of undergirding the idea that it is a systemic problem. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that is the, a much more articulate way of that than I was getting at that. <laughs> Excellent job. All right. So that is some new books, a few from July, a couple from August. Uh, we're going to keep talking about those and we'll catch up on some of the stuff we missed. Uh, and with that, let's hear from our second sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, Publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher. A story of first love that will break your heart. Wild Ground is a bittersweet novel that follows two teenagers whose all-consuming relationship is tested by the forces of class, prejudice, and addiction in a small English town. 
From the beginning, it has always been Neef and her beautiful, troubled mother, Chrissy. When they move to a small town to follow Chrissy's older boyfriend, it's a chance to start over. And on the first day in their new home, she meets Danny and the two form a friendship that gives way to the slow burn of romance as they grow up, desperate to escape the confines of their world and the forces that hold their families hostage, like substance abuse, poverty, and racism. Now, this is perfect for fans of things like normal people, euphoria, and sex education. It centers working class women in small town England. It's steeped in the dialect and lyricism of northern England. So make sure to check out Wild Ground by Emily Usher. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Mayor Dudeja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. All right. So uh, for this first episode after our break, we thought it would be fun to talk about uh, the books we read while we were on our summer break. So this is a whole random (laughs) collection of nonfiction that we picked up over the last month or so. I feel like I got my like groove back with nonfiction maybe over the last month. So I'm excited. I'm excited about that. Hooray. Yeah. Um, I I didn't know if I was meant to chime in because you do such a lovely job setting up our things. But I definitely was doing a lot of audiobooks and Mm -hmm. because I do my coloring app while I listen to my audiobooks and I can't do fiction as audiobooks. So my my nonfiction has gotten my intake has gotten even higher, I would say. Nice. That's awesome. All right. So uh, my first book from vacation or the first one I'm going to talk about is uh, The Ugly Cry, a memoir by Danielle Henderson, which is a couple of years old. uh, And it is a memoir about uh, Danielle Henderson's experiences being abandoned by her mother uh, with her grandparents. And so when she was 10 years old, her mother, um, after spending some time with her mother and her drug ad- her mother's drug-addicted abusive boyfriend, um, her mother and the boyfriend leave, and they leave Danielle and her siblings to be raised by her grandparents, who did not expect to have to raise children again. So uh, it is a, that is kind of the, the big incident in this, like, coming-of-age memoir about being a black kid who is also weird and not cool in a largely white neighborhood in upstate New York. And so she writes about her grandmother, who was uh, foul-mouthed and uh, sarcastic and just very (laughs) not willing to put up with people's crap and what it was like to be raised by her, but that how that experience really like helped her grow into this uh the person she is today and how to like overcome the experience of her own mother's choices and all of those things um and so her experience kind of from a kid all the way to college the book kind of ends with her heading off to college and setting out on her own 
I, I feel like there's like more I could try and say to describe this memoir, but like, it's fun to just like get the story, you know, and there's just so much here and it is really funny in parts and it is really upsetting in parts. There's some content warnings for uh, childhood abuse and childhood sexual abuse for sure. So that is, that can be difficult to read, but I think like, it's just such a funny and great and thoughtful tribute to her grandmother in particular and just what those kind of like meaningful adult relationships can do for kids even when it's not necessarily the ones that you expect or that are unconventional so i there's a really stellar memoir um the ugly cry a memoir by danielle henderson that one has the good cover, right? It does. Yeah, it has a it has a cover. She's like a little kid. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Stand in there like making a face. And, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, my first pick for summer reading um is Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi. And this is what of course I was alluding to with the doll test. Uh I did this on audio. It was a just over 17 hours, I think. So it's a little long, but not not like a Ron Chernow long mm-hmm. kind of book. It's one of those books that just sort of sticks with you for a while after. And you, you keep thinking back on it and things that you read. And it won the National Book Award for nonfiction, which in like the mid-20-teens, mm-hmm. uh, which it definitely deserved. And the way that it's set up, because obviously this is a, a large topic, if you're going you know, back to the 17th century in America up to the 21st, because he covers Obama's election, is he, he sort of centers it around five different American figures. So there is Cotton Mather in the 17th century, maybe early 18th. And then Thomas Jefferson, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist, and W.E.B. Du Bois, which I always thought it was Du Bois. But according to the audiobook, (laughs) it was W.E.B. Du Bois. And then uh, the most modern is Angela Davis. And Obviously, these figures themselves had widely ranging opinions um, and and places within these sort of like this history of racist ideas. He also, Kendi, talks about the sort of differences between assimilationists and segregationists and racists and anti-racists and how a lot of the 18th century or 19th century debate on um, black rights centered around uh, assimilationists and how either that or segregationists who were saying things like, you know, well, let's do, um, I forget what the movement was called, but basically we're, it was like basically Liberia, right? So it's like, let's mm-hmm. separate because we, we can't all live together. It's impossible. And then you also had this idea of uplift suasion, which is like, oh, if we behave perfectly, then we will prove that these bad things said about us as a race are wrong and they will be forced to accept us, which Ibram X. Kendi is very much like this idea has been tried for 300 years. <laughs> and all that happens is that racist ideas adapt and the bar gets ever higher or just changes completely. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just it, it's so like, again, it's hard to encapsulate, but I, I feel like he does such mm-hmm. a good job of centering it around these figures, but also getting away enough from them to give you a big a, like a, a bigger picture of what was happening at the time. Um, but it does cover base uh, for that like 400 years um it was oh it was so good okay so stamped from the beginning the definitive history indeed of racist ideas in america by abram x kendi
Yeah, I have not read that one yet, but I, I've i always, every time I hear someone talk about it, I appreciate that approach of like racist ideas and how they, like you said, sort of morph and change and adapt to different situations and that there's, yeah. So great pick. I'm glad that you got to listen to that one finally. I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, the second book I read, uh, one of the second ones, is um, Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America by Eliza Griswold, which was a general uh, nonfiction Pulitzer Prize winner in 2019, I think. Um, And I picked this one up because I was so enamored with Invisible Child, which was this year's general nonfiction prize winner that I wanted to see about some of the other ones. And so this is one I had on my shelf. um, So I grabbed it. And so this is a book about fracking and its impact on two small um, Pennsylvania communities, uh, Amity and Prosperity. So um, sort of the main um, story or the main character of the story is a woman named Stacy Haney, who is a, um, she's a nurse. Uh, She lives in Amity, Pennsylvania. And at the beginning of the book, she is sort of struggling to support her kids while also like doing her job and all these other things. And so uh, a big fracking company in Texas comes into the town and starts getting people to sign contracts so that they can use their land. And so Haney sees that like she can get money and uh, be more secure if she signs this contract. So she and her neighbors is going together and sign one thinking that this will be helpful for them. But instead it ends up (laughs) destroying their lives and their land. The trucks come in and just like get dust everywhere, which is, and you know, like that's very inconvenient and things are, are tough with the like building and all of that. But then like it goes from annoying to being super dangerous. Her children start to get very sick. There are animals, they're like farm animals, and their pets begin dying for no reason that they can figure out. They start having all of these like mysterious rashes and illnesses. And the company continues to insist that nothing is wrong, but obviously something is. And so um, Haney goes from being you know, just a person who thinks fracking is maybe going to be helpful for her to being an activist trying to like prove that this company is killing her children and ruining her her farm um and so the book follows her for seven years as she um tries to get the pennsylvania like environmental it's not called the environmental protection agency in pennsylvania but like the epa of pennsylvania and um the federal epa and all of these other institutions to try and help her prove that Um, This company destroyed her water and is making her children sick. Um, And so the book is about that. And it's also um, about how institutions like fail people who are supposed to protect people can't or don't or get stymied by the face of like a corporate profit and everything. The other kind of main characters of the book are this husband and wife lawyer team who uh, end up taking on her case and sort of are they're like, they get described as like the Atticus Finches of this community, like fighting for the underdog um, and uh, eventually like earn them a really half deal that we don't know how much uh, settlement with this company. Um, but obviously like that settlement doesn't cover all of the pain and trauma and lingering health issues that uh, this family and their neighbors are experiencing. So anyway, it is a really good book. It is uh, frustrating and taught me a lot about fracking that I didn't know and just really like puts a face to like our energy crisis and everything that's going on and I think in a in a way shows just how people who say that they're trying to help often 
can't or won't or don't and why that can make people feel like the government is not there in their best interest or there to help them. So just gave me a lot to think about. Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America by Eliza Griswold. Oh, that sounds really good. It is very impressive reporting, like seven years of this story. And it's just, it's great. Yeah. I might add that to my list, depending on my emotional fortitude at (laughs) that time. Yeah. I continue to dwell in the past. And my next pick is the quartet orchestrating the second American Revolution, 1783 to 1789 by Joseph J. Ellis. So differently than David McCullough, Joseph J. Ellis, I've read a number of his books because he writes short Mm -hmm. books about the 18th century, which in America, which is astounding. Because for white men to write short books about 18th century America (laughs) basically never happens. But uh, so I appreciate Joseph J. Ellis's little niche that he has carved out there. And I read the quartet. It focuses on Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, John Jay, and James Madison. So those are the four in the quartet. And when he says the second American Revolution was really fascinating and talks about the period between he's like, okay, so we won the... American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, that's done. Then all of the states are thinking of themselves, right, as a confederation and as opposed to a republic. And they're like, well, we're all our own little nation states, which I kind of heard before, but I definitely thought that once we won the war, everyone was like, great, let's all join up. And they were not. So... The second American Revolution is getting all of these states on board to have a stronger central federal government and the men who sort of worked very hard to make that happen on the higher up side being, you know, Washington and Jay and Madison and Hamilton. And it was just all this stuff that I had no idea about. And it was so fascinating. I was telling a friend of mine how in grade school, I feel like they teach you this one version (laughs) of history. And then as you get older, they're like, okay, well, none of that's actually true. But we <laughs> we tell you the first version kind of as like a template for like oh, sweeping, like this is kind of what happened. And then it's like, well, technically none of it, but kind of also it happened. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, with this, it was just, and then it ends, you know, with the Constitutional Convention and how that kind of like almost didn't happen and how all this stuff was happening behind the scenes and, you know, you had to finagle. And Rhode Island was always very much like, we're not going to be part of this, (laughs) which I thought was funny. Oh, gosh. But yeah, essentially, it's, it's a short little book about something that clarified a lot for me about early uh, American history. So the quartet orchestrating the second American revolution by Joseph J. Ellis. I agree with uh, Joseph J. Ellis, like his his compact history books. I, I read at least one of his. I can't remember the title now, but that was one of the reasons I picked it up because I was like, yes, here it is. It's a- was it Revolutionary Summer? Was it Founding Brothers? It's Founding Brothers. I think that's what he won the Pulitzer for. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They're both, they're all very good. Yeah. Like did. Great pick. That sounds very interesting. Oh, real quick. He did lie about his military service, <laughs> oh. but, but that's not about the 18th century. That's not a lie about that time. So That's true. That's true. Just moving on. <laughs> the thing that happened. <laughs> All right. Uh, so another thing I went back to during my summer vacation was Obama administration memoirs because nice. I still like those. They still are very soothing to me. 
So the one I listened to on an audiobook is The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House by Ben Rhodes. Uh, ben Rhodes was a uh, foreign policy speechwriter, expert, uh, advisor to President Obama. He was one of a few people who were there from like the campaign all the way until the very last day of the Obama presidency. He was at the end of the the presidency when they left, um, Michelle and Barack and the girls and the, their family got on a plane to fly out to California. And he was one of the staff members who was on the plane flying out with them. Um, so like he was there for, for everything. And so he, as a foreign policy expert, he was there through all of the big foreign policy accomplishments of the administration, which I... Um, I don't know. I just I didn't pay as much attention to, I guess, or maybe it wasn't as much on my radar. So a lot of this was things I remembered happening, but I didn't remember a lot of the details. And so it was really fascinating to kind of walk back through them. So like the raid to kill Osama bin Laden, um, responding to Arab Spring and Benghazi, um, the nuclear agreement with Iran, the reopening of relationships with Cuba. So he... um, he um, has a an MFA in fiction, um, which interestingly, like in the political part of the book, like comes to bite him in the butt because people are like, oh, he's a speech writer and also he's a fiction writer. He must be lying, which, <laughs> you know, politics, whatever, but it makes him a really good writer for this memoir. So he has a great sense of storytelling, um, great like sense of people and um, picks out good like anecdotes and kind of examples of stories and is able to kind of um, get at the bigger picture of like what foreign policy means to a presidential administration, that foreign policy is something that you can do, but that it moves really slowly. And what you can count as like a victory or like moving the needle is really incremental. Um, And so I liked kind of learning that perspective on presidential administration rather than like the domestic side of something. So uh, that is The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House by Ben Rhodes. I just like when you read Obama <laughs> administration books because I know it makes you so happy. So it's just, it's great. It just takes me back to a time when things were, they they weren't simpler, but they they feel simpler in retrospect. I understand that. Um, okay, so my last pick for this section, uh, I'm actually like 20 pages from the end of this one, but I'm counting it anyway. And it is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land by Sally Denton. I talked about it in our last new episode as a new release, mm-hmm. I think. But now I've actually read it. So I have things to say. It's There's so much going on in this book, which I think we kind of touched on just based on like what the uh, summary mm-hmm. was saying on it. But like... Oh, gosh. Its main focus is the 2019 murder of um, three adult women in northern Mexico and six children, which was blamed on drug cartels, either Sinaloa, which was formerly headed by El Chapo, or one of the other two, one of which is La Linea, and the other is like Juarez something. But they're pretty sure it was Sinaloa. And it's because after El Chapo was arrested, there was this power vacuum. Whatever. But why were there Mormons in northern Mexico? Right. So they came in like the 1880s when Brigham Young made a deal uh, with the federal government being like, okay, we'll make Utah state, but you have to ban polygamy. And so some Mormons said, no, thank you. And they went to Mexico in order to continue polygamy, which is not officially sanctioned by the Mormon church. So these people have been there for a century, right? And Mm -hmm. or a little over a century at this point. Oh, gosh, that's 140 years. Oh, God. 
Um, like the 1980s were 10 years ago. Is that right? <laughs> so what it, it centers around this murder, which is, is difficult to hear about, right? Because children die. But it also then goes back to that history and tells you about these particular families that came to this area in northern Mexico, how they built these farms, how they stole a lot of water from local villages, and uh, which they, I believe, disclaim. And build these lives for themselves, which at least are very good for the white males heading these families. Not sure about anyone else. But within that, then you also have the story of what was happening in these various drug cartels. You also have some a blood feud that was happening between some of the families, particularly one where they were uh, one of the people who was like the son of a former prophet or something. Um, He ended up murdering a lot of people or being responsible for their murder because he kept trying to um, become sort of like the head of everything, right? And he it was called Blood Atonement. And it was this idea put out apparently by Brigham Young where you could only save someone by killing them, which doesn't make sense. <laughs> Gosh, sorry. I'm just like, I can't. Um, and there, so as you can tell, though, that, like, right, so we go from this like blood atonement, m- like multiple, like many, many murders, like tens of murders by this man in the 1970s and 80s. And then you also have, they talk about the more like Mountain Meadows Massacre. And then you have the, the flight to Mexico b- by this group. And then you have the stealing of the water and then the drug cartel. So there's just a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of elements happening here. And I feel like the biggest, it's so weird reading about it, right? Because you have these people who um, have had this horrible, horrible thing happen to them. But then you also, and they're like, they're trying to make us leave our home. But then you're also like, yeah, leave your home. You're taking all this water. Mm-hmm. like, And uh, in a very, very arid region. So um, there's just a lot, you have like conflicted feelings. And I think it, I think it would be a good book for like a discussion, like a book club. You know, because mm-hmm. there's just a lot of things to to kind of debate. But um, I'm, I mean, again, 20 pages from the end, but very fascinating book. So, The Colony: Faith and Blood in a Promised Land by Sally Denton. I'm glad you finished that one because yeah, there's just like so much there, and it's one of those books where you're like, is this all going to come together? And it sounds like it did, and so that's very uh, yeah impressive and exciting. Um, I have one more last book to mention, which I won't talk about too much because we've talked about it several times before, I think. Uh, I finally got around to reading Crying in H Mart, a memoir by Michelle Zauner, uh, which uh, is a story. Uh, Michelle Zauner is the lead singer, founder of a, a band called Japanese Breakfast. Uh, and this memoir is about her relationship with her mother, who uh, passed away from terminal cancer. And so she writes about her um, experience growing up in Eugene, Oregon, her relationship with her mother, who was very uh, exacting in particular, her kind of leaving home to move to the East Coast, uh, meeting her future husband, starting a band, and then um, returning home to care for her mother after she is diagnosed with cancer. Also about their kind of family visits to Seoul to meet her extended family and the relationship she's built with them over the years. It's it's, uh, just as everyone who has read it has said, it is a beautiful memoir. It is very sad, um, but also um, her portrait of her mother is so specific and um, 
beautifully written. Um, there's a, a lot about food in here that is just, if you love good food writing, like there's really good food writing in this book. And I just, it was, it was really good. I just wanted a book that would make me feel things and it made me feel a lot. Uh, and I really appreciated it for that. So Crying in H Mart, a memoir by Michelle Zauner. Uh, yeah, my, my wife read that, she did that on audiobook and really loved it. She told me maybe no, uh, hmm. which, so I, I, my guess is if you had, if you've had like a parent, but particularly probably a mother pass away mm-hmm. semi recently, and especially if you had a complicated relationship. Yes. I think that could be very hard. I think if you, if you wanted to poke at that feeling, this would be a, a good book to do that. But if you do not want that feeling to be poked at, then this would not be one to pick up. Oh, that's a good sort of clarification thing. Oh. Yeah. You know how sometimes you like want to, uh, so I'm a person, uh, this is going to get us off track and we're over time, but um, I'm a person who sometimes needs to be prompted to feel my feelings. And so sometimes in order to like get the feelings that I'm having out, I need something to like help move them that way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so sometimes it's like finding a book that like pokes at the particular experience that you have had that helps you kind of emote and and move through that. And so I think if this if that is a feeling that you needed to feel, then this book would help with that. Isn't that like the, isn't that like Aristotle and catharsis or Yeah, something like that, yeah. Cool. (laughs) All right, so (laughs) with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. So I finished Crying in H. Mart yesterday, and I picked up The Scandalous Hamiltons, A Gilded Age Grifter, A Founding Father's Disgraced Descendant, and A Trial at the Dawn of Tabloid Journalism by Bill Schaefer, which is basically like if you had to write a book for me, this is the book that you would write. Uh, it is about a uh, Gilded Age uh, story of a, one of Hamilton's descendants and how he meets and marries a grifter and um, what happens to them and how their uh, story is fodder for like the golden age of uh, yellow journalism and tabloid journalism in the United States. So I'm like read the intro, but already I am 100% in it. Oh my gosh, that sounds great. Uh, and I'm reading Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side by Eve L. Ewing, who is another poet writing nonfiction. Um, and this is, I'm like a third through it, and it's focusing on like the the many, many closings of Chicago public schools that happened in um, the 2010s and what communities were doing about it, particularly in the historically black neighborhood of Bronzeville. And it's really good. Obviously kind of sad, but just really neat to see sort of the nuts and bolts of how a community was like coming together in order to protest mm-hmm. the things like school closings. So with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we'd love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.